Hello, saver. Whether you're saving for that trip to the tropics or saving for an emergency, now is the time to take advantage of Wells Fargo's savings options. Wells Fargo offers savings accounts that can help you save towards your goals. So, what are you saving for? Visit a Wells Fargo branch or wellsfargo.com backslash save to open a savings account today. Wells Fargo Bank N.A. Member FDIC. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissing. And this is a show for you if you're bored of people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts. We ask the experts. Our fantastic expert guest this week is the head of lifestyle economics at the Institute of Economic Affairs, Chris Noden. Welcome to Trigonometry. It's great to be here. It's good to have you. Uh, tell us a little bit about, first of all, as always, who you are, what's your background, how are you in the chair that you're sitting now? Well, as you say, I'm at the Institute of Economic Affairs. I know you've had a couple of my colleagues on before, Kate and Steve, talking about very different issues. I do what we call lifestyle economics, which is paternalism and nanny state kind of stuff. There's obviously a lot of regulation, a lot of uh, political activity around gambling and drinking and smoking and vaping and these kind of uh, lifestyle pleasures, I would call them, which may or may not pose risks to some people. And because they pose risks, they're not regulated like your average products necessarily. And um, one of the things I kind of discuss and, and write about is what is actually the appropriate level of regulation. It's certainly not, in my view, prohibition, which is where we seem to be moving with some of these things. So I started out writing about this stuff about nearly 15 years ago. Um, and the initial impetus for that was the whole anti-smoking thing, which was really picking up around that time. A few years later, you had the smoking ban in Britain. And I, at that time, I was quite a keen smoker. And so the idea of smoking being banned in pubs was not particularly appealing to me. But what I was really interested in is where do these people come from? Because I never actually met anyone knowingly who wanted to ban smoking in every pub in the country. Uh, and so I started delving into that and you know, what is the anti-smoking movement and what's the history of the anti-smoking movement. So I ended up writing what was basically a history of the anti-smoking movement, which came out uh, nearly 10 years ago now. And in that book, I had two basic hypotheses, really. Um, one was that the anti-smoking campaign now was going to get more and more nasty and was going to ultimately lead to prohibition. And the other was that the anti-smoking campaign is going to be used as a template for similar neo-prohibitionist campaigns against alcohol, food, gambling. And everything that's happened in the last decade has pretty much confirmed me in, uh, in, in that view. And um, so I'm always busy because there's always stuff in the news about it. You know, barely a day goes by when there isn't either a study saying X, Y, and Z is much worse than we thought and we mm. need more, more laws against it, or some single issue pressure group is saying the government must act to do whatever against whatever. But it, it generally involves higher taxes, more restrictions, um, making things less affordable, less available, um, less advertised, and is generally less appealing. Um, but all of this really goes against what is the mainstream uh, you know, uh, assumption in, in economics, which is that if there isn't a market failure, which it usually isn't, then you're just better off leaving the market alone. Let people decide what they want to do. You assume people are reasonably rational, reasonably well-informed. And so if people want to exceed the chief medical officer's guidelines for drinking, you should let them do it. Um, and the kind of political campaign that I write about is always trying to push people in the opposite direction. It's always trying to make things more 
inconvenient and more expensive. And those kind of policies do have costs that aren't discussed enough. You, you are making people's lives worse if you are deliberately uh, pushing them away and making uh, it more difficult for them to pursue their goals, basically. See, I'm someone who's naturally probably very libertarian leaning on the one hand. On the other hand, as I'm listening to you, I'm finding very difficult to agree with a lot of what you're saying. Uh-huh. Uh, and here, because the, the assumption, I studied economics at university, and the assumption in economics always seems to be that human beings are reasonable, rational, etc. But isn't the point with all of these things like junk food that we'll talk about, like cigarettes, like drugs, etc., that they make people act in ways that are either irrational in the moment or that are irrational from a long-term perspective, that people underestimate the impact of having a bacon butty or a cigarette or, you know, a joint or whatever on their long-term health uh, and the you know the repercussions of that people don't take that fully into account. Well, to some extent, that's bound to be true, and that would be true of almost any purchase you you choose mm. to make, right? But buyer's regret is quite a common thing, and mm. it's very very common for people to not get as much pleasure out of buying and consuming a product than they initially expected. In fact, that's almost almost the norm. Um, but I think actually you can assume a good degree of both um, information and rationality. Obviously, not perfectly, and there's a whole field of behavioral economics, which tries to delve into that in more depth and and look at the psychology of people's behavior. But I think you are on very dodgy ground when you start to implicitly assume that the answer is for a benign and benevolent government to work out what Mm. people actually want Mm. and push them in that direction. Now, I would say if there are uh, billions of people going to McDonald's, drinking sugary drinks, on a regular basis, I would assume that's because that's actually what they want to do. And I think it's you have to set a pretty high bar to anybody who's going to tell you, actually, none of these people want to be doing that. Uh, they're not taking in the future costs at all. They really don't enjoy these things. They're just lured in by the advertising or they're in some way addicted to sugar or whatever it may be. Now, addiction does pose a, um, a question with regards to rationality, no doubt about that. Um, but the, ultimately, the, the goal is to make people free. You want to have people who are making the freest and most best informed and rational decisions as um, as possible. And you are obviously not making people more free, in my view at least, um, if you prevent them from doing something. You know, that's, that's a real and tangible restriction on freedom if you stop people doing something, even if you just make something less convenient or, or, or more expensive. That's a tangible restriction on their freedom. And I think that can only be justified if there is overwhelming evidence that people are acting completely against their own interests, which could be the case, possibly, for somebody who's addicted to crystal meth or something like that. You know, I think in the very extreme cases, you could, you could probably... Well, what about smoking? Argument. I mean, the, you know, we t- you, well, I really want to talk about the smoking man mm. a little bit, but smoking, as, as someone who used to smoke and every now and again, I'll have a few cigarettes, like, it, it is unquestionably tr- the case that if you smoke, you massively increase your risk of, of course, cancer, yeah. heart disease, etc. Decrease for- your chance of getting Alzheimer's. That's because well, you die early. No, 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 no. No, there, there's been a study proved between the link between nicotine and developing Alzheimer's. Yeah, there, there are. I mean, the pharmaceutical industry spent years looking at nicotine, mm. developing kind of uh, dr- drugs for Alzheimer's and things like that. No, yeah, okay. but that's not doesn't make it worth it. No, no, no. So you're going to live to fifty and you won't have Alzheimer's. Fantastic. <laughs> so there is an unquestionable link there for what I would argue. Someone who, to be honest with you, quite enjoys a cigarette every now and again, for a very minor gain. In, in pleasure or whatever, you know what I mean? But but mm. set that aside, it is a thing that gives you, you could say gives you cancer. 
right? Mm, sure. Right. Yeah. So what's the benefit of having cigarettes be available to the public and, you know, be displayed everywhere and advertised as they would have been 20 or 30 be years because ago? Because people do enjoy them, you know, mm. and I used to smoke. I smoked for 20 years and thoroughly enjoyed every single cigarette mm. I smoked. Uh, I only stopped because I switched to vaping, which gives me approximately the same amount of pleasure with, with lower risk. So that's great that that's mm. come along. Um, but how do you not make vaping? I'm convinced I'd still smoke. I mean, I, I basically, you know, I knew the risks, obviously. I looked into this in great depth, and I just decided it was worth the risk. And you can say it's only a small pleasure, and yeah, each individual cigarette perhaps only is a small pleasure. But of course, one individual cigarette is not going to kill you. It, it's, it's a lot of pleasures over a period of many mm. decades that genuinely does enhance people's lives. And the fact that there are you know, it's addictive, or certainly to a lot of people, it certainly was to me addictive, I know a lot of people who seem to be able to take it or leave it, um, doesn't change that. You know, people always, you know, people don't get addicted to things that are not pleasurable, right? It's, mm. uh, you know, people no. don't get addicted mm. to doing the washing up particularly. They uh, they get addicted to things that are enjoyable. And the, it's, addiction is kind of, I know you had Peter Hitchens on recently mm. making a similar case actually, but I mean, addiction is really very nebulous as a, as a concept, it's really very difficult to um, to define it apart from anything else. Ne nevertheless, I'm not going to split hairs about that. I fully accept that if you're a smoker, it is much more difficult to abstain from the next cigarette than it is for you know somebody to abstain from the next cream cake or something. Mm -hmm. Although probably the anti-sugar people would disagree mm -hmm. even with that. Um, so it, it, it's not a game changer to me. The fact that people um, don't take future costs as seriously as they mm -hmm. do current benefits, mm. that, that's, that's not even necessarily uh, hyperbolic discounting, that's just discounting. It, it makes sense actually to discount the future to some extent. Mm. And the fact that there's an addictive element to it, which is pretty difficult to define, uh, that doesn't change it either. Because at the end of the day, the, the choice is between having some bureaucrats or, or a government or some politicians or some pressure groups deciding what's best for you, or you deciding what's best for you. It's a pretty binary choice at the end of the day. And I think, and this builds on, on plenty of economists, people like um, Hayek and, and John Stuart Mill himself made this argument very strongly, is it's not that we assume that individuals are perfectly informed and perfectly rational. It's just that we know that the government isn't. Mm. And even if it had much more information than you or I as individuals, there's no way it could have as much information as the entire population. And even if it did, it wouldn't. It couldn't possibly uh, set a policy which works for all these different people because people have radically different preferences. They have radically different desires. Uh, people do make different trade-offs in their lives, uh, and some people are more risk-averse. Some people are more pleasure-centered. So even if we accept that individuals make mistakes, of course they do. Even if we accept they're not perfectly informed, of course they're not. Um, you still need to make the case that the, the government is going to do this job better. And I say not only doesn't it, it couldn't. It can't. There is no way in which it can possibly know all the preferences and desires of millions of people mm. and set a one-size-fits-all policy that would work for them. Um, where do you stand on advertising? Because let's take tobacco advertising. Um, you know, that was banned on Formula One famously, and now we've getting rid of the packets. There's only plain packets. Mm -hmm. Where do you stand on it? Do you agree with it? Do you think people identify with a particular brand or? Um, well, people do identify with a particular brand pretty, but people are fairly brand loyal um, with everything, really, mm. including with, with cigarettes. Um, and that's why there is advertising. That's why you need to have lots of advertising in all these markets, because actually it's really quite difficult to get people to switch from Heineken to Carlsberg or yeah. whatever it is. But that is actually what advertising is about. And anybody in business and people in advertising really know this. And the single issue campaigners never accept it. 
you know, the, if the booze companies are saying, look, we are advertising our beer, um, not because we're encouraging people to drink more, but because we want people who drink beer to switch from this brand to the other one. And actually, even if only a relatively small number of people do that, it's worth millions of pounds to us. Mm, so it makes yeah. total sense mm. for us to spend a lot of money on advertising. Mm. The, uh, the temperance movement have never accepted that. They've always said, no, it's about, it's about inducing aggregate demand. That's Why else would they do it? That's the line they always use. If, if it wasn't getting kids to start drinking, if it wasn't in, uh, increasing the overall sale of alcohol, why would they do it? Well, if you apply that argument to lots of other products, take toothpaste or something like that, right? Take cat food. Why do they advertise cat food? It's not to get cats to eat more food, quite clear, <laughs> right? It's not, we don't advertise toilet paper or, or toothpaste to get people to use these products more frequently. We, we, they're advertised because they are universally bought. They're very, very popular. And if you can shift one or two percent of the market in your favor, it's worth a, a lot of money mm. for you. So I think we can accept that with everyday goods like toilet paper. For some reason, we don't always accept it with things like um, like alcohol. So I, I'm i a big defender of advertising, actually. I know not many people are. There's two good reasons to defend it. One is, well, it's more than two, actually, but one is quite straightforward. It provides a lot of free stuff for us, and people seem to forget about that. You know, your, your free copy of the Metro with a standard, that's there because of advertising. Using Facebook and Twitter for free, that's there because of advertising. Using most things on the internet are there. Your commercial television stations are there because of advertising. So they are annoying adverts, and I'm not a fan of watching mm. adverts particularly, and, you know, actually, TV advertising is, is going down the drain because everyone can skip through them now. Uh, and it's a big problem. But I do appreciate the benefits that it brings me just as a consumer of newspapers and, and, um, uh, and, and TV programs. Yeah. And, and those programs will get worse and the number of stations will decline if the government starts clamping down on other forms of advertising, having already dealt with tobacco, like so-called junk food, which is the, the next step. And gambling advertising is probably going to go as well, I think. Um, all of that takes money out. And I've got an interest in this. as a, I'm a big fan of snooker. And that tobacco advertising ban had a massive effect on the game of snooker. It, it nearly destroyed it. You know, there was uh, one time after that ban came in, there were about four tournaments in the entire world. There was no money in the game. No one was coming through. Um, the smoking ban then hit the grassroots, actually. And, mm. and snooker clubs are just in, in, ter in terrible trouble, probably never really recover. You could almost um, say they were snookered. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I apologize. I apologize. That to sound um, you can hear is me taking off my mic and walking <laughs> out. And, uh, it has so, to be done, though. Someone has no, to do No, it. no, no, it, it didn't. Have I to. thought it did. Right. So we really clobbered snooker. That was a bad thing for snooker fans, a bad thing for snooker players. And it, to be fair to Barry Hearn, he's got the game back on its feet now. There's loads of tournaments. But that, that's happened largely because, if you watch any snooker, they're all sponsored by online gambling companies. Mm -hmm. And it might not be long before online gambling companies are prevented from sponsorship and advertising of, of anything. Um, so you know, there's not a bottomless pit of advertisers who can replace these guys, you see, that's the thing. So, um, yeah, from a consumer's point of view, just of, of the media and of, of you know, various free things, advertising is good. Um, it's also a good thing in terms of just letting people know what's out there. And, of course, we all know that, you know, we all know Coke exists. So from that point of view, it doesn't need to remind us that, mm. that Coke exists. But it is in a battle with Pepsi and, and other mm. drinks. And if they stopped advertising, it's kind of game theory. If they stopped advertising, Pepsi would win. It's in both their interests, really, to stop advertising. Yeah. Uh, and then the market wouldn't really change very much. And as long as all the other soft drinks stopped advertising too, they'd actually make more money. And that actually is what happened with the tobacco companies after the advertising ban. 
they were spending a fortune, but it was it was all defensive advertising. You know? mm, a lot yeah. of people who attack our advertising don't understand how much of it is actually defensive. Um, the people who talk about corporate power and the manipulative power of advertising, it's 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 a paper tiger. Uh, these guys are terrified that somebody else is going to eat their lunch. Um, and so, you know, in a funny kind of way, it actually helped the tobacco companies make more money because they saved a vast amount. It didn't really have any effect on the smoking rate and it didn't really have any, any it didn't make any much difference to market share. So they just battled it out on price. I, I suppose a counter argument with that bit would, would be um, product placement, which we see a lot in films. Mm. And you see James it, Bond. Yeah, yeah. And you see it with Bond. You see it with James Dean, Marlon Brando. They take the cigarette, they tap it, they put it in, they light it. It looks fucking cool, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, I think it does. Yeah. Have, yeah. I don't think a lot of that was product placement, by the way. I mean, there has been product placement yeah. of, of tobacco and alcohol. And obviously, the, the Bond things, you've got Heineken and um, yeah. laptop computers, and they pay a fortune, don't they, for that? But that probably works much better than advertising, actually. Mm. Having it associated with James Bond, literally there in the film, must be yeah, well worth the money. Um, but no, I mean, in the old days, yeah, most people smoked and therefore most characters on, in film smoked. And the fact that it, can, it, it works well from a filmmaking point of view, doesn't it? The fact that you've got this pause where you can zoom in and yeah. you've got that moment where they light the cigarette and it, as you say, it looks quite cool. So I don't think a lot of that was kind of paid for promotion, mm. as it were, by, by tobacco companies, to my knowledge. It's a kind of chicken and egg thing as well, yeah. because if smoking is cool and you have a cool character, mm. then you want to portray him as cool, you give him a cigarette as well. Mm. I mean, have you noticed a lot of the kind of Netflix documentaries and a lot of the films now, they seem deliberately set in the past just so people can smoke it. Yeah. Like Stranger Things. Have you seen Stranger Things? So it's set in the 80s. It doesn't need to be set in the 80s, yeah. really. I mean, they, they get a bit of mileage out of the fact that it's like some of those old 80s films. Mm. But it just means that everyone can be smoking all the time indoors. Mm. <laughs> it looks quite cool. Mad Men's a perfect example of that. Right. Yeah. The, the one instance where I would disagree with you is I'm a big football fan. I love football. And when I watch a football match now, it just seems to be bombarded with gambling adverts. Mm. And that isn't really a problem for me. I'm, I'm a 36-year-old man. Fair enough, you know, that you want to pro you do what you do. But I worry about, and again, I hate the way I'm going to say this, I worry about the effect on young people, especially children who watch football, who then suddenly become bombarded with adverts being made aware of gambling at, a, at an age when they don't necessarily need to be. I I don't know. I think the, the evidence on that is, is is not very strong, actually, that the gambling advertising has any effect on people's uptake of gambling or of gamblers becoming problem gamblers. If you look, well, at hold it, on, it has no impact on the number of people doing gambling. Why are they doing it then? And now you're asking the question because I mean, take take your um, take your online gambling company, your Ray Winston's and stuff, yeah. stuff like that. Right? There is a huge amount of that at the moment because. You get a lot of advertising in a market when a market has recently opened up and people are fighting for a market share, and you get a lot of advertising in a market where the companies think the door is about to close on advertising. And at the moment, you've got both those things happening in the online world. It's a relatively fresh market, so there's still a lot of companies who are battling to be the, the market leader. But also the fear that any minute the government is probably going to ban this uh, TV advertising. It's only been legal for So they're fighting for market a, share, they're uh, not trying to get more people to gamble. Absolutely, yeah, they're fighting for market share. Yeah, I don't think there's there's, there's any real doubt about that. I mean, obviously, it, it, they would be quite happy if it mm. led people to, to start gambling. And I dare say it does get people to put a bet on the football that they wouldn't they wouldn't have done otherwise. I mean, I, I put a bet on the football um, just a few days ago for that, that very reason. I was Not because of the advertising, actually, but because I had a phone in my hand and it was convenient and it was a game I wasn't that interested in, but putting a tenner on one of the sides was going to make it more interesting for me, you know? mm. which is actually what a lot of recreational gambling is about. It's just mm. about giving you a bit more pleasure mm. from watching an otherwise meaningless game. And <laughs> I, I, I lost it. I backed, I backed Man United and they lost for the first time in months. Um, but I wouldn't have done that 
had I had to leave the house and go to a bookies, right? Now that wasn't advertising, that was just having an, you know, an online um, convenient way of, of doing it. So yeah, the fact that people can gamble on their phones and on their computers has no doubt made more people put more bets on. But there's no evidence at all that the liberalization of gambling that we've seen in the last 15 years has led to any increase in problem gambling whatsoever, despite the fact that every now and again the newspapers will claim otherwise. It just hasn't. We've been measuring it for 20 years. And it's, it's A, it's low. It's a lot lower than it is in places like Hong Kong or Sweden where they have a more restrictive um, set of laws on gambling. Uh, and it hasn't gone up. Hasn't gone down, but it hasn't gone up. It's about 0.6% of gamblers. You know, pretty small number. Mm. Hong Kong is like 2%. China is like 4%. Las Vegas, you won't be surprised to hear, it's about 5%. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's where they all go, right? Well, exactly, they go, yeah. yeah. But the question, I've always been very, very interested in this. What responsibility do gambling companies have for addiction? And should they contribute and help people who have become addicted as a result of the vices that they promote? and have in society? It's a good question. I don't know how much responsibility they have. I mean, does, does a car company have responsibility for motor accidents? Does an alcohol company have responsibility for people you know, getting drunk and falling over? I, I don't think so, really. Um, I think it makes sense for them. I think possibly morally, it's, you know, if you're making a lot of money, morally there's a case for taking a slice of that and, and setting up you know, a problem gambling charity and stuff. And they do do that. And you can always say, well, they should be giving more. Well, okay, but how much, right? They do give millions of pounds, these companies, and I dare say some of them could afford to, to give more, and it would look good for them. It would be good corporate responsibility. But I'm not sure whether morally they have a responsibility necessarily uh, to do that, unless they feel they're acting unethically in the first place, which presumably they don't. Mm. Well, let's let's move our way through the drugs pyramid and move away, mm. a step up, because as you said, we had Peter Hitchens on the show quite recently, and that's kind of how this interview has happened. You, we, you and I were talking about it, and you were like, I've argued with Peter about this many times. So uh, let me just try and recall some of the, the kind of things that he said. He said that, uh, first of all, his central argument, I think, is that uh, people who consume drugs should be treated as criminals because it's a voluntary action. Mm-hmm. Um, and that uh, once a drug is legalized, you can't, you can't go back, you mm. can't prohibit it again. And also, particularly on cannabis, his point was that there's, there seems to be, he, he didn't necessarily say it was causation, but there's certainly a correlation between the use of marijuana and uh, violent mm. acts, uh, mass shootings, terrorism, etc. He he reeled off a, a very impressive list of mass shootings and terrorist attacks that have been committed by yeah. people who were habitual users of cannabis. So um, if he were here, if he was sitting in France's seat, let's say, what would you say to him? Well, firstly, on the point about you know, once something's been legalized, you can't prohibit it. He talks as if these drugs have always been illegal. If you just take a longer view, the war on drugs is only 100 years old. Mm. And there wasn't actually much of a problem with recreational drug use while they were openly available, openly available to anybody. You could get them, you know, in the 19th century, most people would have taken opium in some form, often just for pain relief or something, but it was pretty widely used. But there wasn't any real moral panic about, um, about opium use, huge moral panic about gin and alcohol, beer, uh, but never about opium. And cannabis, to be fair, was never very widely used, but it was it was in America. So some, these things were legal, and we did prohibit them, and it hasn't worked. Now, Peter's argument is is really quite unique, actually. Um, if you have arguments about drug uh, reform, legalization, the traditional battle is between someone like me who thinks that a it's basically just morally wrong to be stopping people from consuming these these drugs. 
Um, but also that actually the, the consequential argument is, is, is pr probably more compelling for most people, which is people, more people are dying as a result of drugs being illegal. You know, far more deaths from opiates, mainly heroin, than there were 100 odd years ago when you know, people were using them freely. Um, and there's all sorts of reasons for that about how the supply chain makes these drugs more uh, concentrated, more lethal, more addictive. And my vision is to go back to the kind of pre-prohibition stage. Now, the, the argument against that is traditionally like, well, it's just, it is actually immoral for people to be using these drugs and we should use every argument against them. And Peter does say that, but he goes one step for, further and he just says there isn't a war on drugs. And it's quite difficult to then blame the war on drugs for anything. You know, so I will be saying, well, you know, heroin, for example, wasn't, wasn't used until the war on drugs came along. It's only come along to replace the smoking of opium, which is relatively harmless because it suits the drug dealers to have something that's much more compact, much more uh, easily mm. to transport, blah, 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 right? Um, but that doesn't cut any ice for Peter because he just says, well, it, drugs are basically legal. I mean, you well, can get them yeah, So they're basically he didn't legal. say that on our show. So yeah. No, oh, well, he said it before. I mean, yeah. that's the, the gist of his book, The War We Never Fought, is mm. that essentially the drugs might as well be legal, that the police don't really enforce cannabis well, laws that's true, particularly. Isn't it? yeah. It's, yeah, but there's a big difference between that and them being legal, right? Yeah. So a lot of the, the problems I have with the war on drugs is that people cannot walk into a shop and buy something and know what's in it, mm. and know, you know what it's likely to do. So there's no regulation whatsoever. Um, the supply chain behind that is is built on blood. Um, that would be a legal market, right? If we if we, somebody could do that, obviously you cannot do that. And so you've got you know ecstasy pills which are adulterated and kill people. That clearly wouldn't happen um, if you had legal ecstasy. But Peter just overlooks that and says, oh well, the fact that you get a slap on the wrist for possession of cannabis uh, means that the whole thing doesn't really exist. And therefore, any argument you make about the harms of prohibition is invalid because there isn't prohibition. Mm. Mm. And of course there is. Mm. I mean, you know, the, the, the mere fact that you can, you can be done for possession, actually people do get done for possession, particularly of, of class A drugs. Um, yeah, they, they can have their careers ruined actually quite quite often, and sometimes not very often serve time in prison just for possession. You know, possession was never illegal in America under alcohol prohibition, right? So the prohibition of drugs is actually much more far-reaching than the prohibition of alcohol was, and it's suffering from the same in inevitable uh, problems. Mm. How would a society? How would you envisage a society where drugs are legal? Would it be the sort of the Amsterdam model where you go into a coffee shop and you pick your, your weed and you sit down and you smoke? Would it be completely legal? How would you go about because licensing it and regulating it? Well, broadly speaking, it would be like this. And um, you, you would have, I think, probably specialist shops is probably the way to go. So like your, your old head shops before the government banned legal highs mm. uh, or used your, your tobacco. So a, a specialist shop licensed um, but not restricted in number. You know, some of the places in America that have done this haven't done it very well because they've turned it into a quite a cozy state mandated cartel, mm. right? And so you get shortages and you know, not enough competition. And they've banned branding in some, in some places and stuff like that. I wouldn't do any of that. I would have branding. I would have probably some level of advertising. I think politically you need to be realistic that you're not going to have a great deal of it. Um, but I think it is important, uh, that, um, that we have brands because people know where they are then. Mm. You know, it, it's a real incentive. This is one of the things overlooked when it comes to advertising and brands. There's a huge incentive for a company to maintain quality 
and to maintain their own reputation if they have a brand that is worth a fortune. If you haven't got that, if you've just got cannabis shops where you've got anonymous pots of green leaves and nobody really knows what it is, there is no incentive whatsoever to maintain the quality because no one knows where they're getting it from. Mm. So actually, I think you need, do need to have brands. I would have specialist shops for things like um, cannabis. I would essentially legalize all the drugs themselves, but not necessarily every derivative. That's the thing. Mm. So I, I don't think I would legalize crack cocaine heroin, for example, but I would certainly legalize opium smoking and I would mm. have opium smoking bars. Obviously, there would be no smoking ban under my, <laughs> my, my regime. So this is just um, your way to get smoking yes. back into yeah. the pubs. Yeah. Let's legalize it's a, opium. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. a crack in the door yeah. to yeah. bring back smoking. Um, so yeah, so opium smoking. Now, I'm not going to stop people from you know, making crack cocaine in their kitchens. You know, I'm certainly not going to stop people from growing their own cannabis and stuff like that. I just hope that if you give people a much safer variety of the drug, essentially the variety of the drug that was consumed circa 1880. Mm. All right, so that would be smoking opium rather than intravenous injection of heroin. Mm. Um, there would be some form of cocaine. I mean, cocaine is a difficult one. I think most legalizers accept that cocaine is a difficult one because I mean, it, it does play to your ir irrationality point, mm. right? When, um, when, when people are on the stuff, it's clearly very, very Moorish for a lot of people. And, um, uh, you know, they don't necessarily act in the most responsible or rational way. <laughs> However, I... Um, As comedians who've performed <laughs> to audiences of some of whom have uh, been on that... Kind, yeah. yeah, I it's think, bad, I think yeah. Uh, yes. It's so it's difficult, but it is right. out there already, yeah. right? You know, people are oh, already taking it. In London, it's, it's just, it seems that everybody's on it. Yeah, despite the fact that it's really expensive. Yeah. So, I don't know, cocaine was never used all that much actually before Prohibition. It was kind of associated with a few bohemians and actors. Mm. Yeah. Um, but it was used. Um, it was mainly used actually in kind of patent medicines and stuff. And maybe that might be the way mm. forward. We, we look at the drugs that are being consumed today, i.e. Uh, under prohibition, and just assume that a legalized market would be just exactly the same drugs, but sold mm. legally. Yeah. I don't think it would be like that because, as I said before, prohibition has incentivized suppliers to produce these drugs in the most powerful and um, concentrated forms, which is not actually responding to demand. Skunk is a great example of this, yeah. right? So skunk is a fundamentally different drug, really, to what marijuana was like up until the, the late 1990s. And it has caused a lot of the problems that Peter talks about. It's just that Peter doesn't get that the solution isn't to try and have some kind of Iranian-style enforcement of drug laws. The, <laughs> the, the solution is to go back to that kind of stuff. Because I actually know a lot of people who start smoking cannabis around that time because it was suddenly getting much stronger. And people didn't know why. People didn't know about the THC level or the CBD level. Yeah. They just knew that it wasn't that ple pleasant and yeah. they were getting paranoid. So a lot of people stopped consuming at that point. Uh, but a lot of people started really upping their consumption. Mm. And this is where you see, I and mean, most people know someone who's kind of turned into a recluse or a yeah. loser really as a result of, of skunk. Um, but that wasn't that wasn't the suppliers following demand for really strong, high THC, low CBD cannabis. That was just them going, well, we can we can breed these strains and we can charge twice as much for it yeah. for the same physical volume. Therefore, great, right? Same reason under prohibition in America, people weren't yeah, Al Capone wasn't selling beer, right? Because it was too bulky. He was selling spirits. The stronger mm. the better. More, mm. ba more bang for your buck. More profit. Same thing with skunk. So I think if you legalize skunk, I think what we, uh, sorry if you legalize cannabis. I think what you would have to do would have, you'd have to have some sort of level, mm. uh, some sort of limit on the THC. And also, more importantly, I think, a minimum limit of CBD. CBD is the antipsychotic bit that kind of balances mm. out the THC. Oh, Nature is, is wonderful in, in 
putting these things into plants, isn't it? Uh, and over time, the crossbreeding has led to uh, le much less of that, almost non-existent amounts of that. And that, that's really caused the, the psychological. That's really problems. interesting. Yeah. One thing I was going to ask is, we all, we all, I think most people are aware of the cost of addiction and drug use for individual people and for society. You know, drug addicts, people becoming homeless, people living on the street, uh, you know, violence sometimes, as Peter talks about, all this kind of stuff. But I think we so often forget that the drug war, which I, I personally think is absolutely being waged, has a huge cost as well. And that cost is tremendous in terms of people dying in, in places where these drugs are being produced, where they're being trafficked from. I mean, Mexico is essentially a non-state because yeah. it's it's run by cartels mm. and thousands of people are dying tens of thousands mm. dying yeah. every year it's it's it and in in the most brutal and horrific ways i mean the stuff that's coming out of mexico is just shocking yeah right? and before that it was colombia you know wherever right. the yeah. whether the, whether the capital of the global drug industry is is always the murder capital of the world yeah yeah, yeah. so that's one but it, also in western societies the number of people who end up in prison simply for using or being involved in, in, in drugs, mm -hmm. who otherwise would not have been in prison, who otherwise would not have encountered killers and murderers and rapists mm -hmm. and whatever, have, would not have then become violent and you know, would not have been radicalized in that way. Mm -hmm. That's a huge cost as well, isn't it? Yeah, the greatest cost really is in the, the countries that are producing it. Mm. The, the utter corruption that just infests every element of, of countries which are usually fairly corrupt to begin with, mm -hmm. you know, just, get, just get worse. Um, yeah, that's the, the greatest cost because, like you say, tens of thousands of people are dying uh, every year. It totally undermines normal institutions, just kills a country from within, really. Um, but yeah, there's other costs. I mean, to be, Peter is right when he says there's very few drug users actually in prison or, or very few people being sent to prison merely for possession. It's mainly drug dealers, but of course I consider drug dealing to be a victimless crime uh, anyway, really, or it should be under a, under a legal system. Um, so yeah, the, the costs are very extensive. It costs the government, apart from anything else, a huge amount of money in terms of prosecuting it and you know, controlling the borders, whereas we could be making a lot of money out of it. You know, I, I wrote a study last year for the IA looking at what, how much revenue the government could realistically expect if it legalized cannabis. And I gave various different options of how it would go about it, what kind of tax rate you would, you would have on it. I think it would be reasonable, by the way, to have an extra kind of syntax mm. on, on cannabis just to make it politically uh, plausible, really, apart from, mm. apart from anything. Uh, and we're looking at, you know, just the tax on the product would bring in about a billion pounds a year, I think, or somewhere close to that. You then add on the extra income tax and business rates and so on, that all the you know, the businesses around it, the, the retailers and manufacturers are, are paying, and then the indirect employment and taxes generated by that. That's a, you know, it's not a game-changing amount of money for a government that spends the kind of cash that it does. Um, but it's certainly better than spending money, which is what we're doing uh, at the moment. So I, I am pretty positive about this. You know, I'm, I, everything else I write about, apart from vaping, it's just losing battle. You know, everything's just steadily getting worse from my perspective. But um, really, can, oh yeah, I mean everything's getting more and more, you know, regulated and clamped down on. Um, I mean, the more or less run out of things to do to smokers. The the, the food thing is just taken off sugar in particular. Uh, over the last few years, and that's just not going to end. Uh, we've got Public Health England you know, doing this food reformulation scheme, which is just insane. Um, hardly anybody really knows about it, but it's, it's going on. Um, and as I say, vaping in this country, at least, has been good because we've actually had the public health agencies on side. But most other countries, it's it's horrible. You know, America is unbelievable what they're doing um, with, with vaping. So, um, 
cannabis is is the one positive aspect really globally because things are moving in the right direction you've had Can canada legalized you've had about 10 us states legalized and more to come uruguay is legalized so i don't think britain will be the next off the blocks because we, we rarely are but i think once a few european countries start legalizing britain will realize that it doesn't actually lead to more problems it actually alleviates quite a lot of problems and they're making a lot of money the, the governments i mean that's what's done it in America. America started the war on drugs, don't forget. America yeah. started the war on drugs and then got the UN to get the rest of the world to abide by the war on drugs. And yet it's leading the way in, in ending it, at least with, with, with cannabis. Um, and they've done it because the governors of various states see their neighboring state making a fortune from taxes. And nobody really wants to... Um, bring back prohibition in these states you know overnight it's a big news story when it happens what's going to happen nothing happens basically the same number of people carry on smoking cannabis you might see a slight increase in the number of adults consuming it a slight decrease in the number of under 21s using it apart from that you know the, the sun still rises in the morning nothing really changes and the government's raking in millions of dollars and so the other states thinking mm, maybe we should be doing this now where do you stand on uh, prostitution. Do you believe that we should be legalising prostitution, or do you think we should it should be as it currently is at the moment illegal? I think we should legalise it for similar reasons, and I think that we should be legalising a lot of things that are currently prohibited. You know, I'm not a fan of prostitution, uh, but it's gone on. It's the oldest profession. It's gone on for forever, um, and the pr primarily women who are involved in it. Um, are frequently murdered and beaten up and cheated and yeah, you know, it's it's a it's a terrible situation really. Um, so, given that it's not going to go away, and given that there are major risks involved for the people working in the industry, yeah, it should be regulated as it is in Amsterdam, where it seems to work very well. I mean, I don't really see any argument against against. I mean, there's really. lots of people saying that you're profiting off the exploitation of women. Yeah. You know, it's, well, but the it, people are doing that already. This is a trouble with a lot of these prohibitionists. They kind of they, they just ignore the reality of what happens at the moment and just compare what a legalized market would be mm. to utopia, yeah. Yeah. which never happens. This is what Peter does. Peter imagines that there is some way in which by just using you know, extreme state force, you can get people to stop taking drugs. And it won't happen. And America has tested this to destruction. You know, you've got people in prison for 25 years on the three strikes in your out rule because they've been found with a spliff. Um, you, uh, Iran, Iran, a few years ago, executed somebody twice for, for drug dealing. They hung him, and then it turned out when he, he was in the morgue, he, he hadn't actually died. And he, he, he revived himself, <laughs> and they hung him again. Now, you can't really enforce the war on drugs any more heavily than that. Yeah. And yet there is still rampant drug use yeah. in Iran. If you, want something, if you want something done, send it to Iran. Huh? <laughs> Jesus Christ. You've got to make sure, haven't you? <laughs> Do it properly is what I say. Um, now, you are um, exactly the kind of person. You sound like no, the yeah, kind of person yeah. who would approve hanging of hanging. twice. <laughs> it just sounds more authentic in my voice, doesn't yeah. it? No, uh, I'm a former teacher. I was a teacher for 10 years, and there is undoubtedly an obesity problem in schools, uh, especially, well, teachers and children, but particularly children. <laughs> I was going to say, especially among the teachers. <laughs> yeah. Now, how much responsibility do um, people like McDonald's have with the supersizing, with all the rest of it, with the amount of drinks, and with the, with the amount of sugar in drinks, with the salt and the chips? And, you know, and the fact that they are, it's, it's quite, it's very addictive. 
and some uh, a lot, some studies have said it's more addictive than certain drugs, for example. Yeah, well, they would do, wouldn't they? Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, cheese more addictive than heroin was a story a few years ago. That was fantastic. Some mouse study proved that. Uh, well, to mice, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, right. They gave some of them heroin, yeah. some of them cheese. Turned out the mice like cheese more. Yeah. Well, yeah, like you say, it's a thing, isn't it? Um, well, before I answer your question, can I ask you a question? How many, how many kids were at your school, approximately? Uh, at that time, it was a pro- I was working at a primary school, so there's 320. And honestly, how many of them do you, would you say were obese? Obese, right, okay. I would say around 20%, 25%. 20, 25%, yeah, yeah, I was working in Lambeth, which is, drumroll please, the fattest borough in London. Oh, is that right? Yeah, right. absolutely. Yeah, that, yeah, That's probably slightly less than the official statistics say. But it still it surprised me yeah. that it's that many. Because uh, I won't go into it now, but if anybody wants to check out my, uh, my articles on this, I've written a, quite a lot about how the childhood obesity measure just does not measure childhood yeah. obesity, particularly when they measure it nationally. So I've got big questions about the actual the, the, yeah. the, the size of the problem. Um, <laughs> but there is no doubt that there are more fat children than there yeah. were when I was at school. Yeah. Uh, and the question is, yeah, what, if anything, can you do about it? I, the, the junk food thing, the McDonald's and so on, that obviously comes up a lot. I, I'm not really aware of a great deal of evidence showing that obese people or children or adults go to McDonald's or any other fast food chain more than, more than your average person, actually. It's, it seems to be taken for granted that there's this link, but I'm not sure really there's very much compelling evidence suggesting that. I mean, my view is it's, it's mainly about physical activity. It certainly isn't about sugar. I mean, a lot of the stuff I write about involves just having to explain using routine statistics that a lot of things people believe are simply not true, right? So sugar consumption has fallen since the 1970s. That is a fact that seems to surprise nearly everybody, but it is a fact beyond question. BBC's More or Less show did an episode about this recently. They're the fact-checking program on the BBC, much needed. Uh, and they, they confirmed that, yeah, sugar consumption has gone down. Calorie consumption has also gone down since the 1970s. Um, so given that there was relatively little obesity in the 1970s, we haven't got very reliable statistics, funnily enough, but it seems to be assumed it was probably no more than about 5 to certainly no more than 10%. It's currently mm. about 26%. If sugar consumption has gone down and calorie consumption has gone down over that period, it's not obvious that the cause of this is people gorging themselves with food, let alone gorging themselves with sugar or sugary drinks. That's not to say some people aren't fat because of they drink three litres of coke a day. Of course they are. The people are obese for all sorts of different reasons. But looking at it from a, the population level, that there isn't really a smoking gun there. Um, what there is a smoking gun for, I think, and again, it's quite hard to get statistics on this, is physical inactivity. Um, now, we, given that we haven't been putting Fitbits on people for the last 50 years, it's quite, kind of hard to, to work out the trends. Public Health England say that physical activity has gone down by 24% since the 1960s, which seems a kind of spuriously accurate figure <laughs> for something that doesn't seem very well defined. Yeah. But I think... Broadly speaking, that is correct. And I think common sense tells you that. If you yeah. just look at what, you know, not just people's da- daily lives, you know, all the, um, you know, you don't even need to stand up to change a TV station anymore, right? You know, um, there's so many labor-saving devices at home. But more importantly, occupationally, 
Um, you know, there are just millions of jobs over the course of the last 50 years have gone from being manual to being office jobs. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that you saw the rise in obesity initially with the, the middle class. It was you know, your, your classic fat man who was going to die of heart disease mm. was your your city banker or something yeah. like that, right? Mm. That was how it used to be. And over time, it's now uh, predominantly or disproportionately more working class people, blue, blue collar people who would have been blue collar, but of course are now they've got white collars on because they're working in in tele sales or in offices yeah, yeah, or what yeah, have yeah. you. Mm. So I think that you've got to re realistically you've got to look at physical activity, and there is stuff you can do with that, of course, in schools because you've got a bit more control over people when their children go into school. You haven't got much control over adults. There is no form of regulation really that you can bring in that certainly wouldn't be totalitarian to get people to exercise more. Uh, I don't think many people want to take the Japanese approach of doing you know, 20 minutes aerobics before you start work. So there isn't a lot that the government can do about it. And as a result of there not being much the government can do about it, people don't really talk about it. Chris, if people want to follow you on Twitter and follow your writing, uh, where do they go for that? Uh, CJ Snowden on Twitter. I've got a blog called Velvet Glove. Iron Fist. Obviously, I work for the Institute of Economic Affairs, and uh, I've got a book called Killjoys, which you can download from iea.org.uk, which is my kind of uh, general critique of paternalism. Fantastic. Well, check out all of that, and as always, follow us at TriggerPod on all the social media. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Click the bell button next to the subscribe button to make sure you get notified when the videos come out. Give us an iTunes review. And I think that's it, guys. We will see you in a week from now. Absolutely. And also as well, please check because our YouTube have a lovely little habit of unsubscribing you. We've had loads of complaints. If that has happened to you, could you please resubscribe and tweet us? Uh, because, yeah, we need to know about it. Thanks a lot, guys, and we'll see you next week. Hello, Saver. Whether you're saving for that trip to the tropics or saving for an emergency, now is the time to take advantage of Wells Fargo's savings options. Wells Fargo offers savings accounts that can help you save towards your goals. So, what are you saving for? Visit a Wells Fargo branch or wellsfargo.com backslash save to open a savings account today. Wells Fargo Bank N.A. Member FDIC. We know Georgia politics from Peachtree Street to Pennsylvania Avenue. Politically Georgia podcast delivers exclusive news and analysis five days a week by a team of veteran political insiders watching your public officials. Hosted by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Greg Bluestein, Bill Nygut, Tia Mitchell, and Patricia Murphy. Listen weekdays at 10 a.m. on WABE 90.1. Stream everywhere or at AJC.com forward slash podcasts. News and analysis five days a week from Politically Georgia podcast.